Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank Bambi for supporting my podcast. You know, HR manager salaries average $70,000 a year, but only Bambi gives you a dedicated HR manager for just $99 a month. So get your free compliance audit at Bambi.com slash gold. Spelled Bambi, B-A-M-B-E-E. Dot com slash gold. Well, stocks finished a generally positive week with a strong rally into the close. You know, the Dow ended up better than 450 points on the day to close the week above 33,000. You know, both the Dow and the S&P managed to gain, I think it was about a one and a half percent on the week. NASDAQ Composite actually finished down about a half a percent, though it was up on Friday. But the big mover was in the Russell 2000. It finished the week down about 3%. So the rotation continues really out of the growth-oriented momentum stocks into the value-oriented dividend-paying stocks. In particular, I think now the multinationals as people are looking to invest in companies that have more exposure to earnings outside the United States rather than to those that are focused more on the domestic economy. Helping the markets a bit this week was a drop in long-term interest rates. Yields on the 10-year U.S. Treasury did slip a bit. We closed the week at 1.66, and on the 30-year, we're at 2.367. So a little bit lower than the previous week, taking some of the pressure off the stock market. Oil managed to rise about $2 on the day. So we did close the week above 60 at 60.73, although I think we were down a little bit overall on the week. Big move though in the dollar. The dollar index moved up, closing at 92.73. I think we closed the prior week just below 92, around 91.90. This is the highest the dollar index has been now on this move. I had thought previously that maybe we had seen the highs in that index. It looks like it might be headed a bit higher, but I don't expect to see any substantial gains 
in the greenback, given the reality of the, the U.S. economy. Gold was also down on the week, as you might expect, with a strong dollar, but it was only down about 10 bucks, and we were up about $6 on Friday. Silver, though, got hit harder on the week. It was down about a dollar, so we closed just over $25 per ounce. Now, there was quite a bit of economic news that came out during the week that was influencing the markets. I want to talk a little bit about it before I get into the main drivers of the markets, of course, and that is the Federal Reserve. And we did get some comments from Fed Chairman Powell and uh, Treasury Chair Yellen. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But looking at some of the economic news that came out earlier in the week, look at the durable goods orders that came out on March 24th. This was a bad number. Right? They were looking for an increase of 0.8 in February, and instead we got a drop of 1.1. That's a pretty big miss. We are coming off a slightly upwardly revised January read of plus 3.5%, but still a very disappointing number. Ex-transportation, instead of up 0.6, it was down 0.9 against an upwardly revised 1.6 gain in January And the core capital goods number, which rose 0.6% in January, was supposed to rise another half a percent in February, instead dropped a sharp 0.8%. So really very weak numbers for durable goods in what is supposed to be a very strong economic recovery. In fact, we did get the GDP numbers, the final read for Q4 of 2020, And that was notched up from the previous 4.1% estimate to 4.3, although the personal consumption expenditures number, that did go down a bit from 2.4 to 2.3. But remember, the Federal Reserve is expecting, I think it's something like 6.5% GDP growth for all of 2021, which would put it at, I forget what it was, the sixth, maybe fifth or sixth biggest year of GDP growth since the end of World War II. But despite that, despite this huge recovery that we're supposedly experiencing, again, look at the unemployment claims numbers we got on Thursday. Again, we get these numbers every single week. And another 684,000 people filed unemployment claims on the week. Now that's down from the upwardly revised 781,000 that filed claims in the previous week. And it is a little bit below the consensus, but still this number is higher than the worst week for unemployment during the Great Recession of 2008-2009. And remember, the reason it's called the Great Recession is because it was the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. So worse than any recession that we had since the Great Depression. Now, we're having one of the greatest economic booms ever, at least measured by GDP, yet during the greatest boom, more Americans are losing their jobs every single week than the worst week of the worst recession since the Great Depression. So that doesn't make sense. If this economy is so strong, why is the labor market this weak? The answer to the question is the economy isn't strong. We're simply spending the money that the Federal Reserve prints. And more proof of this comes from the trade deficit numbers that came out on Friday. And again, very little fanfare, very little media coverage. 
of this particular series. You know, we got much more attention on the personal income and spending numbers. They also came out on the same day. And remember, we had a huge surge in January. Personal income was up 10%. In fact, we revised it to up 10.1%. That came from the stimulus checks. Well, there were no stimulus checks in February, and so income collapsed by 7.1%. And consumption, which was up 3.4% in January, which was a big upward revision from the 2.4%. So consumers were really spending those government checks. Without those checks in February, personal consumption dropped by 1%. So again, we have an economy that is totally dependent on the U.S. government and government spending, which, of course, is completely dependent on the Federal Reserve, because without the Federal Reserve printing the money, Americans would have no money to spend because the government is not collecting the money in taxes. It is just creating it or the Fed is creating it out of thin air. But more proof of all this is in the merchandise trade deficit. This is the trade deficit in goods only. It excludes Uh, the services, where we do enjoy a small surplus, at least for now. But anyway, this number came out at $86.7 billion. This is the highest monthly merchandise trade deficit in history. We've never had a trade deficit this big, merchandise. And this exceeds the estimate of $86.1 billion. And also, if you look at the prior month's deficit, that was upwardly revised. It was $83.7 billion, and now we found out it was $84.6 billion. So bad news all around. And if you look at the individual components, imports and exports, they both went down. Imports went down by 1.4%, but Exports went down an even bigger number. They plunged 3.8%. So we imported less, but we exported even less than that. And that is why our trade deficit surged to a record. Now, again, not a lot of reporting because nobody really cares about this trade deficit. But the few articles that were written about it in a very typical reaction, the trade deficit, the exploding trade deficit, was attributed to the strong economic recovery in the United States. So in other words, because the U.S. economy is so strong, we have a record trade deficit, (laughs) the biggest trade deficit in U.S. history, right? As Donald Trump was saying, we are losing big time on the trade deficit. We've never lost bigger than we're losing right now. And supposedly, it's because we have such a strong economy. Now, this is the nonsense that the Keynesians are expecting us to swallow that strong economies produce trade deficits, right? Well, if that's the case, if a strong economy results in a trade deficit, then it must be a weak economy that results in a trade surplus, right? Because if a deficit is a sign of a strong economy, well, then a surplus must be a sign of a weak economy. That is how ridiculous this is. Economists today want us to believe that an economy that is so productive, right, where there's so much industrial production, they not only produce enough stuff for their own people, but they produce extra stuff that they can sell to the rest of the world. And of course, when you have a trade surplus 
and you have earnings from exports, you can then invest those earnings in growing your economy. You accumulate more productive assets. So apparently that type of economy, one that is enjoying increased production, surpluses of goods that it can then export to earn additional income, to be a creditor nation, to accumulate wealth, those are bad things. But in America, where our economy is incapable of producing the goods that we need, and so we have to rely on foreign economies that are capable of producing these goods, and in order to pay to import the goods that we can't produce ourselves, we go deeper and deeper into debt because when you have trade deficits, you are accumulating liabilities. Just like your trading partners are accumulating assets, the debtor accumulates liabilities. We go deeper and deeper into debt every time we print one of these trade deficits. Our net debtor nation status gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And supposedly, this is what's a sign of a good economy. The fact that we can't produce, we rely on foreign economies to produce what we can't produce, and then we borrow the money from them to consume it. And the more we borrow and the more we consume, the stronger our economy. This is pure nonsense. Now, the truth of the matter is, we are spending more money. And so in the short run, this spending is going to inflate the GDP. But we're not spending more money because we have a stronger economy. In fact, we're spending more money because we have a weaker economy. It's because the economy is so weak that the Federal Reserve is printing so much money and handing it out to Americans to spend. But because we have a weak economy, we're not producing the goods to buy with all that money. So we have to rely on the foreign economies that are actually much stronger than our own, that are able to produce these goods, and we're buying the goods from them, except we're not really buying them because we're not really paying for them because we're not exporting. The way you pay for imports is with exports. We are paying with an IOU. The problem is those IOUs are no good because we can never actually redeem them in real stuff. All we could do is keep on printing money to keep this Ponzi scheme going. But nobody is covering this. But these trade numbers are proof positive that the whole story about the U.S. recovery and how strong our economy is, it's a complete fiction. In fact, more proof of the Federal Reserve's continuous support for the economy can be seen in its balance sheet. We got the numbers on Thursday, and we are now at a record high for the balance sheet. We're now over $7.72 trillion, up another $26.1 billion on the week. Now, I do expect to see these numbers increasing at a much more rapid rate in the very near future. In fact, I would not be surprised to see the balance sheet hit $10 trillion by the end of 2021 because we have a lot of deficit spending in the pipeline and there is no way to pay for it other than the Federal Reserve. And in fact, both Janet Yellen and Jerome Powell testified jointly in front of the U.S. Senate where they took Q&A about the U.S. economy. And I wanted to get into some of the answers they gave to questions that had been asked by the senators. One question in particular that was directed to Fed Chair Powell had to do with Fed independence. And the particular senator uh, 
talked about how he was a big believer in the independence of the Fed, that he was a believer in an independent Fed when Trump was president, and he still believes it now that uh, Biden is president, and he wanted Powell's reaction. And then Powell talked about how the Fed's independence is precious, right? And we don't want to lose this precious independence and how important it is. And I, I, you know, that's true. I believe that we should have an independent Fed. The problem is everything Powell is saying to the U.S. Senate and everything he's done since becoming, you know, Fed chairman indicates that there's no independence at all, that there's independence in form only, but not in substance, right? We pretend that we have an independent Fed, but in reality, the Fed acts as if it's just a branch of the U.S. Treasury Department. And, you know, the fact that both the the Secretary of the Treasury and the Fed chairman are testifying together shows a degree of cooperation, right? They're working together, and it seems that they are trying to coordinate their policies. And in fact, the reason that the Federal Reserve is keeping interest rates so low, the reason that the Federal Reserve is expanding its balance sheet is to accommodate the U.S. government that wants to borrow and spend more money. So clearly, uh, the Federal Reserve is acting in concert with the Treasury to advance the Biden agenda, which is exactly what they were doing when Trump was there. Now, Powell initially was raising interest rates, even though the Trump administration was beating him up for it. But it didn't take long for Powell to get the message. And to the extent that he thought he was independent, he caved on his independence and acquiesced to the pressure. Now, not just the pressure from the president, but the pressure from the economy, from the markets. But the reason that the Federal Reserve reacted the way it did was because the government wanted stimulus. The government didn't want to allow a recession to run its course, even if a recession was a better economic outcome than what we're going to have now because it would have allowed for a lot of the imbalances in the economy uh, to be corrected. But Politically, nobody wanted that to happen. So Powell acted as a politician and not as a banker. So when you see these Fed guys, you know, talking about how important independence is, it's all laughable because when you get down to it, none of them really act as if the Fed is independent and none of them are willing to deliver uh, the bitter tasting medicine that will actually cure the economy of what truly ails it. I mean, the last Fed chairman that did that was Paul Volcker. And in fact, inflation was certainly a big topic of discussion uh, during this uh, testimony. And one of the senators asked Powell, well, you know, what tools do you have, right? If it turns out that the inflation is higher than you think, right, maybe it's not transitory, what are your tools? What is the Fed going to do? And Powell basically said, well, we, you know, our tools are we can raise interest rates and we can shrink our balance sheet, right? Which means they could sell U.S. Treasuries into the market. Yes, those are the tools. The problem is there's no way that they're going to use the tools. It really would have been great if one of the senators could have asked Powell, well, what would the impact on the economy be? if you were to use these tools to fight inflation. Because remember, right now, the Federal Reserve is supporting the economy and all of the deficit spending by keeping interest rates at zero and expanding its balance sheet. 
Well, if it has to fight inflation, now it has to start raising its interest rates and you know, shrinking the balance sheet. What's going to happen to the economy? Well, obviously, we're going to be in a horrific recession. In fact, we'd be in a worse recession than the Great Recession of 2008. Now, if Powell were to say that, do you think any of the senators would say, okay, so the Fed is going to deliberately put the economy in a recession in order to fight inflation? Now, I don't, I don't think Powell would actually admit that he would do that. And in fact, I actually think that the next recession is going to be caused by inflation, right? The reason we're going to slip into recession is because of inflation, because rising costs are going to put a lot of pressure on businesses to reduce those costs by laying off workers and rising prices are going to put a lot of pressure on consumers to cut back on their total spending. I mean, they may spend more money because prices are higher, but they're going to buy less stuff. And so some of those businesses that are selling less stuff are going to have to lay off workers. So I think inflation can be the reason that the economy goes into recession. So it's not that, oh, we have this booming economy and we have inflation. And so the economy is so strong and the Fed could raise rates to fight the inflation without interfering with the strong economy. It's my thesis that we're going to go into recession because of inflation. So we're going to have inflation and recession simultaneously, stagflation. And if the Fed does the right thing, if the Fed actually uses the tools that Powell told the U.S. Senate they have available and that they would use, they will turn that recession maybe into a depression. Things are going to get much worse because normally if we're in a recession, Congress wants to stimulate. The Fed wants stimulus. The Fed is basically pounding the drums right now, leading the charge for more stimulus. Powell is saying we need more fiscal stimulus. We need bigger deficits and the Fed's going to pay for it. Well, what if now we have inflation and now the Fed has to pull the rug out from under the treasury after it's encouraged them to take on all this debt and spend all this money because they think inflation is transitory and it turns out that it's wrong. And now they're going to jack interest rates way up when we have all this debt and they're going to push an economy that's in a recession into a depression. I don't think this is going to happen. So when Powell makes this statement, well, sure, it's easy. If inflation is just as higher than we think, well, we'll just start jacking up interest rates and we'll start dumping U.S. treasuries in the market. Interest rates are going to surge, making the recession worse. Or if we weren't in a recession, creating a recession. And now we're in a recession where there is no stimulus. And, you know, if the Fed was willing to do this, then why not do it now? I mean, if the Fed is really willing to allow a recession to run its course, then why not let it run its course now? See, it doesn't make any sense if, if you believe the Fed is eventually going to do the right thing and raise interest rates, even if there's a recession, why doesn't it already do it? Because the longer the Fed waits to do this, the worse it's going to be. The more debt the Fed enables the U.S. government to accumulate, the bigger the bubble the Fed inflates, the worse it's going to be when it pops. So because the Fed is not willing to do the right thing now, I don't believe it's ever going to be willing to do the right thing. So no matter how high inflation gets, they're going to make an excuse as to why it's transitory or as to why it's not important, 
or that maybe they'll find another way to to recalculate the numbers so they can pretend that inflation isn't there. But the one thing they can't do about inflation is fight it. And when the markets finally figure out the box that the Fed is in, uh, then that's it. In fact, I spoke about this. I finally got on the Tucker Carlson show uh, on Thursday night. Unfortunately, though, I was the last person on and my segment was very, very short. I ended up actually, I, Tucker asked me a question. I, he said I had 10 seconds. I, I guess I should have taken him literally. Uh, I should have thought of a quicker answer. Instead, I kind of got caught up in an answer that I didn't have enough time. And so we ended up uh, getting cut off at the end. So hopefully I can get on his show again, maybe earlier in the block and get more time to discuss this topic because this is a very important topic because remember the Biden administration and all the Democrats want to pretend that all of this government spending is being paid for by the rich in these yet to be enacted tax hikes. But the reality is all of the Biden spending is going to be paid for by the middle class and the poor through inflation. The inflation tax is going to hit every American hard in particular, the Americans that don't have a lot of financial assets that will rise with inflation and that simply have their paychecks and their savings, they are going to get decimated. This is a huge tax. This government is not for free. This government is going to cost a lot of money. And the people who can least afford to pay for it, they're going to be the ones that are stuck with the bill. When you're running a small business, it's the HR issues that can really kill you. You got wrongful termination suits discrimination, minimum wage requirements, all sorts of other complicated labor laws and regulations. And if you want to hire your own HR manager, they ain't cheap. The average is about a $70,000 salary per year. But that's where Bambi comes in, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E. Bambi was created specifically for small businesses. You can get a dedicated HR manager that can help craft HR policy specific to your organization, help you maintain your compliance, and do it all for just $99 a month. So with Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest asset. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. You can speak about anything from onboarding to termination. They'll customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees on a day-to-day basis, all for just $99 a month. And the contract is month-to-month, so you can cancel any time, and there are no hidden fees. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend your time doing HR compliance. You started your business to make a profit, and by hiring Bambi, you can spend more of your time focusing on the bottom line and less of your time focusing on compliance and HR. So go to Bambi.com gold right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com gold, spelled B-A-M to the B-E-E dot com gold. On a lighter note, though, one of the questions that Powell was asked had to do with a statement that Janet Yellen had made in the past about why it's important to have diversity uh, at the Fed or in economics in general. I'm talking about, you know, ethnic diversity, um, gender diversity. So in other words, 
that it's an important factor when you're trying to consider uh, economics and, and, and maybe have an idea of what's going to happen when you're trying to make your forecasts about the economy, that if you have a group of people that if you don't have a diverse representation, right? If you don't have enough African-Americans, if you don't have enough women, then maybe you're not going to uh, get the right outcome because you're going to miss certain things that you wouldn't miss if you had the diversification. And so Powell was asked if he agreed with Janet Yellen that we need diversification. And he said, oh, absolutely. We need to have, you know, women. We need to have, uh, you know, African-Americans or on, you know, on the FOMC, because if we don't have a diversified group of people, then we may miss some things and we're not going to get our policy right. And this is all a bunch of politically correct nonsense. Diversity is not important at all. It is completely irrelevant to economics, right? Economics is a science. Maybe it's a social science, but it's a science and there are laws uh, of economics. And those laws do not change based on your own experiences, based on your own perspective. That's politics. That's a political agenda. So I think if you're talking about advancing a political agenda, right, then maybe you can say, oh, we need women on the Fed because they're going to try to push the Fed into policies that support uh, issues that are important to uh, politically motivated women's groups. And maybe the same thing might be the case for an African-American saying, oh, we need African-Americans to represent the political interest of African-Americans. But then what you're saying is the Fed is not about economics. The Fed is about politics because it doesn't matter what your personal experience is. If you grew up as a woman or if you grew up as an African-American, you still learn the same economics. And you don't come to a different conclusion. That'd be like saying, you know, mathematics. You know, we, you know, we need diversity in, in, in math because, you know, we're not going to come up with the right answer unless some of the people in this group are women or some of these people are men. No, it doesn't matter. Men and women have the same math. So if you have the same question, there's only one right answer, right? You, you're not going to get a different answer because you happen to be of a different gender or a different race. So we don't need, if we have all white men on the Fed, that's fine. If we have all black women, that's fine. As long as those men or women are not allowing their gender or their race to somehow bias uh, their understanding of economics. We need people that know the science. That's all that's required. And to say that having a different life experience means that you're going to have a different or better understanding of the science is wrong. You're going to have the same understanding as long as you learned it. But that's the problem is nobody at the Fed probably even understands economics. In fact, these guys don't even have common sense, let alone understanding of basic economics. But this is all a bunch of political nonsense and they're caving into pressure that says that they benefit from diversity. No, they don't. You benefit from having the right people, the smart people on the job, regardless of their gender, regardless of their race. And that's the case for anything. You just want to hire the most competent people who understand the subject matter the best and their racial or gender backgrounds is irrelevant to that. Because no matter what you've experienced, right, the answer is the answer. 
But all this really shows is the fact that more and more people want to use the Federal Reserve to advance a particular political agenda. That's why they want members of the FOMC who share that agenda. And so they will use the power of the Fed to advance that political agenda, even if it's bad economics, even if it's bad policy. And I want to move on, though, and talk about Janet Yellen just a little bit. It's just one point that Yellen made that I thought was important to comment on. And this had to do with one of the U.S. senators was calling out Janet Yellen for her apparent hypocrisy on the debt because the senator pointed to a statement that Yellen had made when she was the chairman of the Federal Reserve where she did warn about the unsustainable nature of the U.S. debt. I mean, not that she did anything about it, right, because she could have raised rates more aggressively to stop the debt from being accumulated, right? But it's all words and no action when it comes to Fed chairman and, you know, trying to do something about runaway debt. In fact, they're the big enablers. But she at least said something about while she was concerned about it. And apparently at the time, debt to GDP was about 70%. Now, of course, that's just the public percentage. Like they always like to talk about the debt held by the public. They want to ignore all the debt that's held by the Social Security Trust Fund. But then, of course, when they want to pretend Social Security is solvent, they always point to these non-existent trust funds. So you can't have your cake and eat it too. If you want to pretend that the U.S. government doesn't owe any money to the Social Security Trust Fund, then you can't also pretend that there's a Social Security Trust Fund. But the government says, hey, look, we have this huge Social Security Trust Fund that's full of U.S. Treasuries. But then when they talk about our debt, they pretend that the U.S. Treasury doesn't owe any money to the Social Security Trust Funds. But taking a look at the debt expressed as a percentage of the debt held by the public and ignoring what all these trust funds hold, it was 70% when Yellen made this statement, and now it's over 100%. And so the senator says, well, why are you not worried about the debt now? Because the debt is a lot bigger than when you worried about it as Fed chairman, but now you're uh, Secretary of the Treasury, and you're not worried about the debt at all. In fact, you're wanting to expand the debt. You're advocating these big spending programs without any tax revenue to pay for it. So why now are you not worried about something that you once worried about? And her answer was, well, the reason she's not worried about it is because interest rates are lower now than they were back then. And so that's why it's not a problem. Now, first of all, I mean, maybe they were at zero back then. I don't know exactly where they were, but clearly, I mean, they couldn't have been any higher uh, because they're at zero now. But Janet Yellen said that the important thing is not how much debt you have, but what it costs you to pay the interest on that debt. And so as long as the net interest expense of the United States is low, then the debt's not a problem. And therefore, we can increase our debt because with these really, really low interest rates, the cost of servicing that debt is very low. And that was kind of the end of the discussion. Now, again, I wish... One of these senators would have been smart enough to ask Yellen, or maybe they are smart enough not to ask Yellen because they know how bad the answer is going to be. But that question is, okay, Secretary Yellen, interest rates are low now, but they're not going to stay low forever. So if you're saying the debt is only not a problem because interest rates are low, what happens when interest rates are no longer low? 
What happens when interest rates are high, right? Well, then Janet Yellen would have to acknowledge, well, then I guess we're going to have a huge problem. Well, then I would say, well, Janet Yellen, are interest rates going to stay low forever? Or is it likely that at some point they're going to go up? Right. So unless she wants to say, no, interest rates are going to be low forever, they're never going to go up. Well, if she admits that at some point they're going to go up, then at some point we're going to have a massive crisis. And in fact, the longer we take advantage of low interest rates or exploit low interest rates and use it as an excuse to take on more and more debt simply because the rates are low, then when the rates go up, we have a much bigger debt crisis and Janet Yellen would have to admit that that day of reckoning is coming and there's nothing we can do about it, which brings me back to the point that the Fed knows this, right? If Janet Yellen, who used to chair the Fed and Jerome Powell, who currently chairs the Fed, right? They're both in the same uh, hearing and here's Janet Yellen saying, well, the only reason that we're not going to have a debt crisis is because interest rates are low and Powell is the one that's controlling the rates. And now he's already said, well, if we have inflation, um, you know, we're going to raise rates to fight inflation. But if they raise rates to fr- fight inflation, well, now we have a sovereign debt crisis. Yellen just mentioned that. Well, if interest rates go up, then the debt's a problem. Well, then why would Powell make it a problem by raising interest rates? That's the very point. He's not going to do it. The other important factor, too, that nobody asked Janet Yellen to comment on is about the short-term nature of this debt. It would be one thing if the U.S. government was borrowing all this money and locking in these rates for 30 years. Right then, maybe a big increase in interest rates would not be as impactful on the budget because at least a lot of the debt from the past will have been locked in at these really, really low rates. And so it will only be a problem to finance the current deficits at higher rates. But that's not what the Fed is doing. If Janet Yellen, as Secretary of Treasury, realizes, and she does because she stated it, that the only reason the debt isn't a problem is because the rates are so low, then why isn't she advising the Biden administration to sell longer-term treasuries instead of rely so heavily on short-term treasuries that reset constantly? And so they are dependent on where rates are. So if you have a 90-day T-bill, Every 90 days it matures and you got to go and sell it again at whatever the prevailing market rate is. And if you have a large percentage of the $27, $28 trillion national debt, who knows how high it will be by the time rates go up, probably well north of $30 trillion. But if you have a large portion of that $30 trillion financed with short-term debt and then interest rates go up, it's not just the current deficit that has to be financed at a higher rate. It's the existing deficit that now has to be refinanced at that same higher rate. So we are heading towards a major crisis that Yellen herself admits to by saying the only reason it's not a problem is because rates are so low. And that proves that the Fed is now in a box because the Fed can't fight inflation without creating a crisis for the U.S. government. Because not only will the Fed's inflation fight 
claim the economy, right, as collateral damage, not only will we have the worst recession in U.S. history, but we will produce a debt crisis for the U.S. government because the U.S. government is going to have to slash government spending during that recession, and it may even have to default on its debt because how will it be able to pay that debt? How will it be able to service that debt when interest rates go up? I mean, that was the same problem that Americans had who had teaser rates on their mortgages, right? Their mortgage payments reset. They can no longer afford to make the payments. So they defaulted and they mailed in their keys. Now, a lot of people think, well, the U.S. Treasury will never default because we can print money. No, the U.S. Treasury can't print money. The Federal Reserve can print money. But if the Federal Reserve is fighting inflation, it is no longer in the money printing business. It is in the money destroying business because the way the Fed fights inflation is takes money out of the system. It takes away some of the money that it's already put in. It is shrinking its balance sheet. And so if the Fed is shrinking its balance sheet, and the U.S. government doesn't have tax revenue to pay the interest on the debt, well, then it's going to default. The only way the government avoids default is if the Fed doesn't fight inflation. The Fed has to keep printing money to prevent the U.S. Treasury from having to default, which means they're surrendering to inflation. You see, you can't fight inflation and bail out the U.S. government at the same time. So the Fed has to choose between massive inflation or default on U.S. Treasuries. Now, neither of those outcomes are good. In fact, they're horrific. But most people would believe that under no circumstances would the U.S. Federal Reserve allow the U.S. Treasury to default on the risk-free asset on the U.S. Treasury. In fact, what would happen to the dollar if the U.S. Treasury defaulted? Of course, what would happen to the dollar if the U.S. Treasury doesn't default because we have massive inflation instead? So it's six of one, half dozen of the other. But this crisis is coming and nobody uh, uh, at this hearing seems to have any clue as to the severity or even enough understanding to ask the right questions, let alone understand the implications of the answers to those questions. Of course, what are the primary reasons for a lot of this government spending that's about to come in this next uh, so-called stimulus bill is going to be for infrastructure, right? We need to address our uh, crumbling infrastructure. But of course, all the infrastructure bills, they're always couched in language of stimulus, right? That spending money on infrastructure is going to be an economic stimulus. After all, the government has to hire people and spend all this money. And so this is going to be good for the economy. And again, this is another Keynesian myth that needs to be debunked. And that is that infrastructure spending does not help the economy. What helps the economy is the infrastructure itself after it's built. But again, that's only if the infrastructure is viable if it makes a positive impact on our economic productivity, right? So if you build a bridge to nowhere, right, that is the the classic example of a government infrastructure project, what value is a bridge to nowhere? None, right? So if the infrastructure doesn't help make the economy more productive, then the infrastructure itself is of no benefit. What is of benefit if you have an infrastructure project and after the project is completed, the economy is more productive, the economy is more efficient, 
And that increased efficiency and productivity ultimately recoups the cost of the upfront infrastructure investment. And now the economy is better off because the infrastructure was built. But the returns happen in the future. The costs happen in the present. So when you have to fund an infrastructure project, as you are making the expenditures, you're not stimulating the economy. It is actually a drain on the economy. You have to divert resources that could have been used for you know, other purposes that may have impacted the economy in the present, and now you're diverting them to this project that's going to bear fruit in the future. Right, So it's actually a drag on the economy in the short run. I mean, if you want to think about it from the perspective of a individual, right? individuals sometimes have costs that they incur that have a payoff in the future, but bear a cost in the present. Like, let's take the example of a individual who decides to go back to college and to get a degree, right? Because he believes that this degree is going to increase his future income opportunities, right? If he had a a degree. And maybe he has a job right now, uh, but he wants to take some time off to go to school to get this degree. Well, in the short run, right, the cost of getting this college degree is going to be a burden on his personal economy. I mean, he's going to give up some income that he had and now he's spending money on tuition and things like that and he's studying. And so the money to fund his personal investment in his degree means that he can't spend that money on other things, right? He can't take a vacation. He can't travel. He can't eat out in restaurants as much, right? Because he has to take the money that he was going to use for those other purposes and now use it to fund his college degree. Now, to the extent that that college degree increases his productivity, makes him more valuable in the workforce so that when he returns to the workforce in the future, he can then earn even more money because he made that investment in his personal capital. And now because he can earn more money in the future, well, now he can spend more money on travel and vacation. He can get a nicer car. He can get a nicer house. So there is a payoff in the future for that investment in the present. But when he is making that investment, there's a sacrifice. And the same thing happens to an economy. If we decide that, hey, we need to spend a trillion dollars repairing our infrastructure, okay, well, where is that trillion dollars going to come from? What do we have to give up in the present in order to afford to make that investment in our future? So the act of diverting labor and capital from other uses to infrastructure projects that are not going to have a payoff into the future, in the short run, it does not stimulate the economy. Now, that doesn't mean that infrastructure investments shouldn't be made because I'm always thinking about the long term. But of course, if you think that the act of spending money on infrastructure in and of itself is stimulative, then you're going to have infrastructure projects regardless of whether the infrastructure is needed or not. You're going to have bridges to nowhere. You're going to have the government paying people to dig ditches and then paying other people to fill them back up again. You get nothing. But this is the Keynesian mentality that simply working and doing something 
is good for the economy. It's not. What's good for the economy is the output related to that work. So if your work doesn't produce anything, then it's not worth anything. Just because the government pays people to dig ditches and fill them back up again doesn't mean that we've got any actual value to show for all that wasted labor. But society has to pay for it. So none of these infrastructure bills are going to amount to an actual stimulus for the economy. They're actually going to weaken an already weak economy because the reality is we can't afford to spend on our infrastructure. That is the problem. It's unfortunate that the government has bankrupted us so much, right? We already have all this debt, right? If we didn't have all this debt, maybe we can take on more to take care of our infrastructure. But because we already borrowed so much money to spend it, we're not financially solvent enough to deal with the infrastructure problem. And if we try to do it from a position of insolvency, well, then we just accelerate our national bankruptcy. A couple of other uh, news stories that caught my attention. You know, I noticed that Disney did increase the price of uh, Disney Plus by 14%. That's a pretty big price hike. Now, of course, Powell would say, well, this is transitory. Well, does he expect Disney to lower its price next year? I doubt it. Now, maybe he thinks, well, it's a one-time price increase. Well, how does he know that this is not going to be a routine annual price increase. Maybe the cost of Disney Plus is going to keep going up 14% per year. But I think when you see these type of price increases, this is just a small indicator of what's really going to be happening in the overall economy. Because you would think, oh, with all the competition among streaming services, maybe Disney Plus wouldn't be hiking its uh, prices. But despite all that competition, that's exactly what it's doing. Another story that is, uh, I guess, relevant to the Bitcoin community was that Elon Musk finally announced that Tesla was going to be accepting payment in Bitcoin. And when the news broke, it initially sparked a rally in both Tesla and Bitcoin that proved to be very short-lived. But when you actually look at what Tesla is doing, Bitcoin is not going to be used as money. Right? The reason that Tesla is going to allow people to buy cars in exchange for Bitcoin is because Tesla wants to accumulate Bitcoin. They're not basically using Bitcoin as money. They're bartering with their customers. Tesla has cars that their customers want and the customers have Bitcoin that Tesla wants. And so they're exchanging. So Bitcoin is really not being used as a digital currency, but it's a digital asset that Tesla is willing to barter in exchange for an actual car. And the reason that you know that it's barter is because Tesla has announced that they are not going to sell any of the Bitcoin that they receive. So if they get some Bitcoin in exchange for a car, they're just going to hold it as an asset on their balance sheet. They're not going to use it to pay any of the business expenses related to the sale of that car. And the car itself is not priced in Bitcoin. The car is priced in dollars. But what Tesla says, when you go to check out and buy your car, hey, if you don't want to actually buy the car using money, you can barter your Bitcoin. We will accept your Bitcoin instead of money, right? But the money, if you pay Tesla 
with dollars, well, they're going to use the dollars to pay their bills. They're going to use those dollars to pay their workers. They're going to use those dollars to pay rent. They're going to use those dollars to pay taxes. They're going to pay for all sorts of costs. So they're going to use the dollars as money, as a medium of exchange. They're not going to use the Bitcoin in that way. They're saying, hey, you can give us some Bitcoin and we'll give you a car and we're going to hold on to the Bitcoin. So these are barter transactions. So anybody that says, aha, this is proof that Bitcoin could be money, it could be currency, that more and more companies are going to accept it, it's sheer nonsense. And the only reason that Elon Musk is doing that is to advance that false narrative to try to pretend that Bitcoin is something that it's not in order to generate more demand for Bitcoin as people start to think that, oh yeah, Bitcoin is going to be used as money in the future just the way Tesla is, but Tesla is not using it. And more proof that it's not money is if you read the fine print and you look at the conditions that you must accept if you are willing to barter uh, some of your Bitcoin for a Tesla. First of all, on the website, Tesla says that if you accidentally underpay, because the way the way this is going to work is once you get a dollar price, they will give you a window of time. And it's probably a very short window, maybe not more than, I don't know, five, 10 minutes. I'm not sure. But you have a sh- short window where you can elect to pay the Bitcoin amount and it will tell you how many Bitcoin you need for this dollar amount. And then you have to transfer the Bitcoin over. And if you miss your window, then you're going to have to reset, start over and get a new window because obviously Tesla doesn't want people gaming uh, the system uh, when it comes to these purchases. So you get this window and Tesla tells you, all right, the car is going to cost $60,000. And let's say Bitcoin happens to be exactly $60,000. So Tesla says you owe us one Bitcoin, right? And, And so you have this window of opportunity to transfer one Bitcoin to Tesla instead of the $60,000. Now, what the site says is if you accidentally don't send a full Bitcoin, let's say you only send, you know, a tenth of a Bitcoin, you get a decimal place wrong. Tesla is going to say, oh, wait a minute, you didn't send enough money. Here's how much extra dollars you owe. And now here's how much Bitcoin that is. So if you don't send enough Bitcoin, they will give you credit for the value of the Bitcoin that they got, but they're going to give you a new bill for how much more Bitcoin you have to send because you didn't send enough the first time. But on the other hand, if you make a mistake and send too many, let's say instead of sending one Bitcoin, you accidentally send 10 Bitcoin, according to Tesla's website, they get to keep the difference that you have no right to demand a refund, uh, which is pretty scary, right? You accidentally send them more than you need They're just going to thank you and they're not going to give it back. Now, I don't know what they really would do. It'd be pretty bad publicity if they were to do that. But obviously, if the amounts were smaller, maybe you paid 1.1 Bitcoin instead of one. uh, And then they end up keeping uh, the extra amount of, of Bitcoin. So that's number one. But also number two, look at their return policy. Uh, If you're not satisfied with the car and you want it back, or I think they have another buyback policy or, uh, but all of these things for refunds or buybacks, if you pay using your Bitcoin, Tesla has the following conditions that if for any reason they have to give you your money back, it's their choice whether they give you back your Bitcoin or whether they give you back your money. So let's say you buy a Tesla 
it's $60,000 and it's one Bitcoin, right? And let's say, you know, a week later, you decide you don't want the Tesla. It doesn't work the way you thought you want to return it. Let's say Bitcoin has gone from 60000 to 70000 They're not going to give you back your Bitcoin. They're just going to give you back the $60,000 that your Bitcoin was worth when you bought the car, right? Because they get to choose how they want to repay you. Now, on the other hand, let's say Bitcoin goes down to 50000 from 60000 Then they're going to give you your Bitcoin back. So you're going to give them back your car and they're going to give you back the Bitcoin. But now it's only worth 50000 When you bought the car, it was worth 60000 So this is why it would make no sense for anybody to actually buy a car using their Bitcoin. Because let's say you wanted to return the car and the price of Bitcoin went down. Well, then when you got your money back, well, you could buy uh, your Bitcoin back cheaper. But you can't do it under these circumstances because it's Tesla that gets to make the decision. But of course, there's a reason that they have to do this because if they committed to returning your Bitcoin, right, then what if the price of Bitcoin went way up? Well, then somebody would want their Bitcoin back, right? If I bought a Tesla and I paid with Bitcoin that was at 60,000 and a week later it was at 70,000, I might just tell Tesla, hey, I want my Bitcoin back. Here's your car because I want to get the gain, right? So Tesla can't allow you to do that. At the same point, since Tesla is actually keeping all the Bitcoin, if somebody paid for a car with Bitcoin and then wanted their money back as they returned the car, if the price of Bitcoin dropped and they had to give them the original value, well, they would take a big loss because they would have not sold the car but they would have lost money on, on Bitcoin because when the car was bought, Bitcoin was worth 60000 But when they had to return the money, it was only worth fifty. But they have to return the sixty that they got. So they have to set the dynamics this way because of the fact that they're holding the Bitcoin and because of the nature of Bitcoin. But all of this proves that it ain't money because when you actually buy a Tesla with dollars, if you return the Tesla, you get your dollars back right? The exact same number. There is no risk. But when you buy Tesla using Bitcoin, there's all sorts of risk that you assume as the buyer that you would not assume if you paid with cash. So this is all a bunch of PR fluff. At the end of the day, nobody with Bitcoin would actually want to buy their Tesla using their Bitcoin. It makes a lot more sense to sell the Bitcoin first and then buy your Tesla with dollars. And that's what people are going to do. So it's all, again, to try to hype up Bitcoin. And so far, it's not working because the price of Bitcoin isn't going up and the price of Tesla keeps going down. (music) 